Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is great to be back with you. Um, as always, I just want to make it a point to thank the, the people that lead us in singing and in worship. They're here early practicing, and, um, and then, of course, when things don't go right uh, with technology, they have to adjust. And uh, I, just, I just really love the effort and the sacrifice that uh, people make to, to edify us with their gifts. And all of you do that in various ways as well, if you're, whether you're uh, participating in childcare and teaching a Sunday school class or having people over to your home. There's many unseen ways that that happens, and it all contributes to the building up of the body. And uh, so I just want to thank you especially uh, for your sacrifices um, in the music team. So also... Uh, I want to just take a second, um, first of all, in case you don't know who I am, I'm, my name is Jess Arns. I'm the associate pastor at Providence Church, which is over in Duluth, and uh, we're friends of uh, Deemers, and um, so I just want to take a second. He hasn't, he hasn't asked me to do this, but uh, while he's out of town, um, I just want to encourage all of you, um, being a pastor is a uniquely, and I've worked a whole bunch of different jobs being a pastor is the most difficult job that I've ever had, and, uh, and, uh, and he's the senior pastor here. That there's even more pressure on him, and I just want to encourage you all to uh, think um, about some way that you might encourage him, that you might uh, pray for him uh, and, and serve him. I, I think even in terms of loving him and his family, uh, I know that you do, and uh, he is so appreciative and grateful for this church, and I don't know really any of the inside of anything that's going on. Uh, I just know it's tough. I just always know it's tough to be a pastor. And uh, so if you, if you could just do me a favor, out of my love for him, would you sh express your love to him in some way uh, this week and, and seek ways to do that uh, that would really encourage um, him in, in, his, in his work and, uh, you know, Hebrews 11 says, um, submit to your, your, your leaders uh, because they're going to give an account to God for you. And, um, and I just know, personally, I'm, I know I'm, I, I'll just stop with this. When, uh, when I get up to either do announcements or to preach at our home church in, at Providence, I know I get up and I look in the face of everybody in the crowd there and because of my role there, I know of serious issues in almost every single face in that church. You know, you come to church, everyone's smiling, you think everyone's doing great. Uh, the fact is, is that in almost every family here, there is some major issue, some major burden, and uh, the pastors bear that with them. And so, as you bear one another's burdens, uh, think of your pastor and uh, seek ways to honor him. So... Okay, so um, how many of you are new here, by the way? It's your first time visiting. Okay, everyone, okay. So if you're not, if you're, if you're visiting, I was going to say, this isn't a normal morning. Uh, you know, it's usually very smooth and well run. You guys are doing a great job of rolling with it. Um, but uh, so this morning, with all of the distractions, uh, I want to talk about a, a topic um, on the topic of distraction. It's kind of interesting how this has worked out. Um, but we live in an age of distraction, don't we? I mean, if, if there's anything that characterizes our age, it's distraction. Um, just with the advent of the smartphone in the last 10 years, I mean, 10 years ago, almost nobody had a smartphone. 
Isn't that amazing? How many of you have smartphones here today? Okay. So from zero to 95%, including kids, have a smartphone or a smart device. That's insane. How many of you have received a text message or notification uh, this morning during the service? Isn't that amazing? That 10 years ago, that, would have, that answer would have been zero. And now this morning, we are receiving alerts and text messages from family, friends, neighbors, and people we don't even care about around the world. I mean, there was an earthquake in California, which is where we're from. I knew about it two minutes after it happened. Is there any reason why I need to know about it? No, not really. I can't get back there and do anything about it. Oh, I can pray. Well, I mean, it's already happened, right? But I know about it almost the second it happens. We live in this age of distraction. And let me just give you a few cell phone statistics, okay? Because this distraction, while sometimes it's benign, it also has deadly consequences. Uh, Just with regard to, um, you know, uh, statistics with texting and driving and using your cell phone, the National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes each year. 1.6. And that, that number has probably gone up since then, since they did this report. Nearly 330,000 injuries occur each year from accidents caused by texting while driving. One out of every four car accidents in the United States is caused by texting and driving. And texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than drunk driving. Six times more likely. Here's some uh, teen driver cell phone statistics. Eleven teens die every day as a result of texting while driving. According to a AAA poll, 94% of teen drivers acknowledge the dangers of texting and driving, but 35% admitted to doing it anyway, and I'm, I, I'll throw my hand in there. I've done that, more, I've done that a lot. Put your hand down. of teen drivers involved in fatal accidents were distracted by their cell phones. This was was probably three or four years ago that this study came out, so it's probably gone up since then. A teen driver with only one additional passenger doubles the risk of getting into a fatal accident, and with two or more passengers, they're five times as likely to get in an accident. So what's my point here? My purpose is not to give you a lesson on roadway safety, although that would be a worthy lesson to take away from it, right? But to illustrate the point that we live in this really distracted age, let's think about this for a second. What makes something a distraction? Okay, if, if my mom was, uh, was calling me on her deathbed and I answered the phone, is that a distraction? No, that's not a distraction. That's an important thing that I should be doing, right? So... What makes it a distraction? In the case of driving and texting, 
the phone is pulling our attention away from a very serious responsibility, the very serious responsibility of driving, the dangerous responsibility of driving. What makes it a distraction is that your attention should be on something else, and it pulls your attention away from it. So these statistics show that distraction has a serious and evil fatal and even fatal consequences. So what is it about that phone that distracts us from this important task? Why, why are we so easily distracted by such a thing? Why do we take, take such risks? Okay, we know that drive, we know these things. I mean, is this new information to you that it's dangerous to text and drive? That it's dangerous to mess with your phone and drive? Is this new to you? No, it's pretty widely known, right? And a lot of times when you're driving down the road and you see a rear-end accident, you're thinking in your head, yeah, they were probably texting. That's probably what happened. They were texting and they rear-ended the guy, right? So why do we take these risks? I've got a few reasons here. Number one, overconfidence in our own ability. Number two, a lack of awareness of the danger. Okay, it could be. You may not be aware of how, how serious the danger is. Okay, so overconfidence, lack of awareness. Number three, boredom with our primary task. We get bored with driving. We get used to it. So we, we, get, we want to be entertained. So we get distracted. Number four, a lack of self-control. Just that desire for instant gratification. There's something about that message, that ping, that, that, that thought that jumped into your head and you just want to fulfill that desire to know or see or do that instant, Right? Maybe it's uh, impatience. It's something that we should get to, but we're not patient enough to wait for the right moment to do it. Number six, maybe it's the fear of man. Oh, if, they don't, if I don't get back to them within five seconds, they're going to be angry with me. So I want them to, you know, I want them to know that I'm listening to them. So I'm afraid of what will happen if I delay my communication with them. Number seven, fear of a missed opportunity. Maybe you've got a bid on eBay or something, you know, and you, you don't want to miss the opportunity. And so you are willing to take the risk, take your own life into your hands and the lives of those around you for the sake of whatever that opportunity is. And you don't want to miss that opportunity. And then the last thing, that I, last reason that I just thought of is carelessness or complacency. It's just you're not thinking. You're just not thinking. So it's not the phone itself that distracts us, but you could say it's our own pride, our own pleasure, and our misplaced priorities, right? That's what causes us to be distracted from the thing that we know we should be paying attention to. Well, today, I want to observe a situation in which distraction uh, was not a good thing. It was... It was it was a very, um, a very misplaced priority, but it was, it was misplaced in a way that the person did not even know that their priorities were wrong. And we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This is a very familiar story of Martha and Mary. And before we read it, it's so familiar, you might have your own preconceived ideas of what this is talking about. I want you to just set those aside for a second 
and come to this with a fresh set of eyes as we observe this text. Luke, <clears throat> Luke 10, 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I appreciate you all standing for the Word of God. Uh, I should have called the rest of you to do that. Um, but let's pray as we consider this text, okay? Father, we draw near to you uh, with the desire to know your Word, to know you, to know what you value and prioritize for our life. So, Lord, I pray that you would open this text before us, that you would work in, in all of our hearts to, to rightly interpret and then rightly apply it, Lord, so that you would be honored and glorified in our life and that your word would, re would richly dwell in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage says in, at the very end there, Jesus says that one thing is necessary. One thing. Count them. <laughs> one. The word for necessary means one thing is needed. Think about that for a second. What do you think that you need? What is needful for you? What is necessary to you? Because Jesus is saying here that there's only one thing. What are some of the things that you might have said? You need food, shelter, health insurance. You need a stable home environment. You need, you need to be able to own your own home. You need transportation. Some would say that you need self-esteem. But Jesus says that there is one thing that is necessary. One thing is needed. But it's interesting that he doesn't say what it is. In this passage, he doesn't spell out what the one thing is that is necessary. He just says that Mary has chosen this one thing. And it's something that will not be taken from her. What is this one thing? I mean, if only one thing is needed, do you think that you might want to have it? You think you might want to know what this one thing is? So if he doesn't spell it out here, how are we to understand what this one thing is that he's saying is necessary? One thing needed. Okay, and now listen, if you believe the word of God, and Jesus, the Lord Jesus is saying that one thing is necessary for you, one thing is needed, that means you need 
to snap your attention to focus here, right? That means you need to find out what this thing is. If the Lord of all creation is saying that there's one thing. So, how are we going to figure this out? Well, as is so often the case in the Scripture, the answer is context. Context, context. And as we observe this passage as, as, as it's in its setting in the book of Luke, I think it'll become fairly obvious to you. So follow along with me as we observe this passage. So it says, now as they went on their way, verse 38. What is, he, what is it talking about? Where are they going? Well, if you look back at chapter 9, verse 51, it starts the context here. 9, verse 51. And it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The days for him to be taken up. What are those days? That's the day in which Jesus was going to be crucified, buried, and raised again, to be taken up to the Father. So, the day, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is in the last six months of Jesus' life. Jesus has been ministering for about two and a half years, all through Galilee and Judea. And now, in 9 verse 51, Jesus now has set his sight. He's, he's on the down, he's descending. It's like on the, you know, on the plane when they tell you, okay, we're making our descent into Atlanta. It's the last leg of the flight here. Jesus is now preparing to make his entry into Jerusalem. And look at what he does. Verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Okay, so he, this is, you'll see this as he goes on here that he sends messengers ahead of him to prepare towns for his coming. I'm on my way, he, he tells them. And the Samaritans, of course, didn't like the Jews, and so they did not want to receive Jesus because he was heading towards Jerusalem. Okay, go down, verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road. See, they're continuing to go towards Jerusalem. Look at verse 10. And after this, or not verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So in the last six months of Jesus' life, Jesus wants to go through, uh, through Israel and, and figure out which towns are ready to receive the gospel. And he sent out 72 of his disciples, two by two, to go into all of these towns and to make preparation for his coming. So Jesus didn't show up in these towns unannounced. He, they, they were preparing for him to come. So look at what he says in verse 2. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Okay? What is that signifying there? There's an urgency to this. There's an urgency. 
Don't take anything with you that will hinder you. Don't take anything with you that will slow you down. And trust the Lord for your provision. Don't take time to just shoot the breeze with people. You are on a mission, and this is what they are to do. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. And do not go from the house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, and this is their mission, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I want you to notice a couple of things. They're, they're going to go into the towns and villages in which they're about to go. And, and when they arrive, they're to preach this message of the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is coming near to you. They're to heal the sick, and they're to do this with urgency. And we see later on in chapter 10 that Jesus, as he went on his way, entered a village, and a woman named Martha greeted him. Martha lived in one of these villages. Martha was one of these, Martha's house was one of these places where these disciples decided to stay. And look at what it says again in, in, chap, in chapter 10, verse, um, uh, where are we at here? Verse 10. Okay, so after they are to preach the kingdom, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet be wiped off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable in that day for Sodom than for that town. They had the opportunity to receive the Messiah, to hear his teaching in person, to know how to enter the kingdom of God, and they rejected it. It will be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's intense, right? See, Jesus was no hippie just kind of cruising around through Israel, eating fruit and laying around. You know what I'm saying? We see that. You know, you see these movies. Here's Jesus just kind of. And that's, that's, that's our depiction of Jesus. He's just kind of serene, kind of placid. I mean, he's just, you know, we, our, our idea of Jesus as being this, like, uber gentle soft guy is not the Jesus you see in the gospels you see an intensity with Jesus an urgency to Jesus and this is the message that Martha would have heard this is the message that she would have received she was the one that received these messengers into her home and put them up and provided for their food while they waited for Jesus to come. See, Jesus would send these disciples out, and wherever these disciples found a welcome place, that's where Jesus would spend the majority of his time teaching. And he would not, he would not waste his time on towns that rejected him. That's why he's doing this. He's identifying the places where his message would be welcomed. And so Martha was one of these people in one of these villages that welcomed him.
That is, that's the context of this situation. So Jesus entered this village. As you, again, as you look at the end of chapter 10, in verse 38, Jesus entered this village. What village was this? Well, if it's the same village that is mentioned in, cha- in John chapter 11, where Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus lived, it is the town of Bethany. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't take a linear path to Jerusalem. He meandered through Israel, preparing Israel for the day that he was going to be crucified. But if this is the same town, then it's the town of Bethany, one of the villages that the 72 had visited ahead of time. Now, it's interesting to note that in John, you see that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's familiar with them. Because in John, it is much closer to the actual date of his crucifixion. He's already familiar with them. But in this passage, this is likely the first time that Martha and Mary have met Jesus. This is the first time. This, they, they were not long friends at this point. And so this is their introduction, really, to Jesus. And so Martha welcomed Jesus into her home, it says in verse 38. And at this point, you begin to see a contrast being made. So we just talked about the context. Now we're looking at a contrast here. There's a series of contrasts made in this passage. There's a contrast between Martha and Mary. There's a contrast between what Martha thought was right and what Mary thought was right. What Mary did and what Martha did. What Jesus, and then a contrast between what Martha thought and what Jesus corrected her with. There's contrasts being made. And so we see here Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. The way the language here uh, just the way it talks about this situation, it seems pretty clear that Martha is a single lady who owns this home, and it appears that Mary and and her brother Lazarus uh, live there with her. So Mary, Martha is like the mistress of this home. Uh, Who knows how it got that way? If she had a husband who died, who knows? Or maybe she, she she inherited it. But the way that it's listed out here, Martha comes first. She's probably the oldest child. She acts like the oldest child, right? So she is the one who welcomed Jesus into her home. And then it says in verse 39 that Mary was her sister. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Okay, so there's the two characters, right? The two main characters, Martha and Mary. Martha welcomed him into her home. That's a good thing, right? And Mary sat at his feet. And here's the contrast being made. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. There's our word distracted. So the contrast is between Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha being distracted with much serving or with much preparation of food. 
Think about this situation. The two disciples came. They proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, that it's coming near. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. Whatever, whatever happened there, it was very clear this was a special time, special moment. And they tell Mary and Martha and Lazarus that Jesus is on his way and he's going to be here he's going to be here soon so probably taking days of preparation right you think of what preparation would be like back then no electrical stoves no gas grills no running water all of these things had to be made by hand prepared ahead of time. They probably killed the fatted calf. Who knows? This is the most important guest that they've probably ever had. Well, obviously, from our perspective, definitely the most important guest they've ever had. Whether she realized that or not, it's not clear. But obviously, she was very intent on impressing Jesus and his disciples. And this is her home. I mean, listen to this. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve, right? Twelve close disciples. If I told you today that twelve dudes are coming over to your house, ladies, what does that do to you? How do you respond to that? How do you feel about that? Even if I gave you a month, you'd think about it all month. Okay, how am I going to get ready for this? Where are they going to sit? What are they going to eat? Well, it wasn't just the twelve that traveled with Jesus. It was their families as well. And, and then you saw that there were 72 disciples as well there, right? Could it be all of these people? You might have hundreds of people hanging around here. And they are coming to your house. What does the responsible person do in that situation? They make preparations. They rush around. They, they get their family and their friends and their servants working on the food and the wine and the water, mixing the ingredients for the dough and getting the fire heated up in time. And so she's rushing around making the food for all of these people. Can you imagine that? Okay, I gotta get the, okay, we've got to get the timing right. We've got to get the oven to just the right heat and the temperature. Hey, make sure that that dough is mixed up well. Uh, can you make sure that we refill the water pitchers and, you know, let's get the meat going over there. And uh, wait, where's Mary? Where's Mary? Hey, have you seen Mary? No, I haven't seen her. Where's Mary? I don't know. I thought I saw her over in the, in the courtyard. So... You could see Martha rushing around. Where in the world is Mary? And finally, after some searching, she sees Mary sitting, not, not hanging out in the back, not, not listening as she goes by, you know, carrying the food and the supplies, not popping in, you know, for an occasional, you know, you know just kind of moment to check on things. No, Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet. She's sitting all the way in the front, right as close as she can get to Him. What's your reaction to that? 
We've got hundreds of people here who need food and water, and this is the most important guest we've ever had, and you are being lazy, sister, sitting up there. You obviously are neglecting your duties. I don't know if there's a person in here who would not feel that way. And under normal circumstances, that is not necessarily the wrong perspective. But these were not normal circumstances. You see, Mary would never have done this unless she was driven by desperation. Think about this. Women were never allowed to be taught by the rabbis at that time. If they were allowed to listen to the teaching at all, it was always in another room, like listening in through like a lattice or something. They were never a part of the disciples of those of the rabbis. They would at, at the very least they'd have to sit in the back. They were, women were not disciples at that time. In fact, the rabbis at that time. This was a common sentiment. They said, let the Torah, the law of God, be burned rather than be given to a woman. That was the way they felt about a woman being taught by the rabbis. This is astonishing. The fact that Mary is sitting in the front. She's not lurking in the back, trying to catch. She is in the front. Everybody can see her, and she's probably the only woman there. Ignoring her cultural obligations of hospitality. I mean, you know, in our culture, shame and honor is not a huge deal, right? We almost glory in our shame. In that culture, shame and honor was huge. Why? I mean, people lived in the same town for generations. You bring a bad name on your family, it lasts. Mary is ignoring her cultural obligations. She's ignoring and enduring the scowls and the looks of the other listeners. Her sister is likely not the only person disapproving of her actions here. You see, so, so this is not Mary. This is not a sentimental Mary that we're talking about here. Okay? This is not a sentimental story of Mary just really wanting to curl up at Jesus' feet and just, mm, just have a nice warm hug. This is not that type of a situation because that is not enough to propel you past all of those scowls and past... She knows her sister's not going to be happy with this. Why is she doing this? It goes beyond just preference She's not being lazy. If she was lazy, she would, she would have just been kind of chilling out in the back somewhere. No, she is focused. She is willing to endure shame for this. And you see this attitude many times in Scripture honored by the Lord Jesus. Think of Zacchaeus. He was the, the wee little man, the tax collector, who climbed a tree you know, people basically wore dresses back then. You know what I mean? Like, it's a shameful thing. But in order to hear and see Jesus, he climbs a tree. 
and he was honored by Christ. Think of the adulteress who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Everyone's scorning and looking down on her for it. Think of the sinner who beat his chest and begged to, for God's mercy. There is a humble desperation that rightly grasps the importance of Jesus' words. Because look at what she's doing. She's not just hanging out with Jesus. She is listening to His words. Listening to His teaching. And this is the key. So that's what Mary was doing. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Again, what makes it a distraction? It's because what her attention should have been on was pulled away. Her, her attention was pulled away from what it should have been on. That's what made it a distraction. Under normal circumstances, she's focused on the right thing. In this case, she's distracted. That word for distracted means to be, means to be pulled about, means to be dragged around. Uh, the King James Version says she was cumbered about. And I, I always imagine this when I see this passage. You see those dog walkers? You know, they're like walking like six dogs through the park, and the dogs are all going different directions, right? They're just being yanked around all over the place, right? And, and, and they just, like, and if they're big dogs, they're just being jerked around all over the place. And that is the picture that you see of Mary Hirsch, Martha here. She is dragged around and pulled about by many things. And what was it that she was distracted with? It wasn't gossip. It wasn't slander. It wasn't lusts that were distracting her. She was distracted by serving. She was distracted by serving the Lord and His disciples. She was dragged away by her responsibilities. And look, she obviously believes that she's right. Look at what she says. Call this the confrontation. Look at what she says in the middle of verse 40. So she was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She didn't realize that she was distracted. She thought Mary was distracted from the main thing, from the right thing. She was fully convinced that she was right. I mean, how else do you explain the fact that she, okay, it would be like one of you walking up to me right now while I'm teaching and saying, hey, Jess, could you tell my sister to come help me in the kitchen? Okay, that's how intensely Martha thought about this. She appeals to Jesus' authority, and she looks at him, and she says, do you not care? And of course, the assumption is, of course you do, Jesus. Do you not care? Of course you do. Tell her to help me. 
He confronts Jesus and commands him. That, that word where it says, tell her then to help me, that's in the imperative. It's a command. She's commanding the Lord to tell her sister to help. You think she's convinced that she's right? That she's justified in this? Yes. She and everyone else in this room thinks that. She thinks she's the responsible one, the selfless one. You know, she's thinking to herself, I would love to sit there listening to him teach, but I've got other responsibilities. I'm the honorable one. And she confronts the Lord and interrupts his teaching and commands him. But notice Jesus' response, and we'll call this the correction. Rather than responding the way that she expected, rather than responding the way that everyone else expected, and by the way, this is what Jesus does all the time. He always flips things on their head. It's always different than what you, it's counterintuitive to what you would think. And as a side note, you don't have wisdom in yourself to just sort and figure things out. You need him to correct you constantly. The correction, verse 41. But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha. She's, you know, she's in a frenzy. She's in a hurry. She's trying to get the Lord, hey, tell her to help me. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. Come on. He's like, Martha, Martha almost to just stop her on her tracks, right? Get her attention. It's like, Martha. She's like, yeah, okay. Martha. Okay, I'm looking at you, Jesus. He says, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Anxious, it means to care greatly about. It's not always bad. Paul expressed this kind of care for the churches. So it's, a, it's an intense concern that she has. And, and she's troubled. The word is turbazo, like, like turbulence. She's, she's kind of churned up. She's, she's uh, agitated. It's like a turbulent sea in her heart, just tossed to and, to and fro. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Now look at this. What is Jesus' reasoning here? What's the problem with this? Is he just saying, you know what? You're just too uptight, Martha. You just need to relax. Just chill. Sarah, Sarah, you know? Is that his response? See, hey, just slow down. You need some margin in your life, Martha. Hey, just come, come lounge over here. We'll figure it out. Is that what he says? No. Look at what his reasoning is here. What's wrong with what she's doing? She's anxious and troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the one thing. The problem with 
her approach right now is that she is anxious and concerned about everything except the one thing that's necessary. The one thing. What is that one thing? What is that one thing? Well, let's look at what Mary's doing. Maybe we can get some insight from this because he doesn't tell her what it is. The one thing necessary. Look at what Mary did. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Listen to his word. So, whatever this one thing is, Mary has chosen it. It will not be taken away from her. And it has something to do with his word. It has something to do with listening to his word. Now, I could go really general and say, well, you need the word of God, which is true. You do. The one thing you need, the word of God. I don't think that's quite specific enough here. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what, let's, let's work through some uh, passages here, and I, and I want you to kind of strap on, because we're going to read some passages to help bring this into full color, because if you read it in the context of the book of Luke, it becomes really clear, because this is not the only time, and this is not the first time that he's identified what the priority is. So think about this. What is so important about Jesus' word? And as we go through this, what is it that's so important about listening to his word? So think about this. Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? Well, he says back in Luke chapter 2 that he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He came to preach that, to preach repentance. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, he says, uh, this is what was said to Mary says, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Actually, that was to the, that was to the shepherds. He's a Savior. In chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of, of sight to the blind and to set, liberty, set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And He said in verse 21, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus has come. Think not just about his word in general, but what was the content of his word? What did he come to say? What were, the, what were the things he was saying as Mary sat there listening? Chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This was at the beginning of his ministry. I was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus was not preaching helpful tips for success. He wasn't giving you financial advice. He, he didn't come to tell you how to be a, a, good, a, a good employee. Those, these are not, this was not the content of his message. The content of his message was, how do you enter the kingdom of God? Remember, this was no casual FYI campaign that Jesus was on. This was not like just a public service campaign. Hey, make sure that you uh, wash your hands and get your vaccinations. 
No, this, this is like, this is intense stuff. Remember what he sent the 72 out to proclaim. The kingdom of God is near. And if you reject this, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom. This is important. The kingdom of heaven is near. Martha would have known that this was his purpose in coming to the village. Martha would have known this. He's coming to tell you how to enter the kingdom of God. Why would you not, why would you neglect hearing that in order to serve the tables? Why would you do that? Maybe because you think you're already in? Maybe because you think you're already righteous? Maybe because just like Cain offered a sacrifice according to his own desire, maybe Martha was thinking, well, this is how I'm going to please the Lord, rather than hearing what he says and doing it. Think about the content of his preaching. Jesus says throughout the book of Luke, and we're going to mostly hang in the book of Luke, he says that eternal life is the highest priority, higher than spiritual accomplishments. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, when the 72 uh, guys that he sent out returned They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, the fact that you are entering the kingdom of God is not a given it's not, not just everybody gets in. In fact, there's a place in the book of Luke where someone looks at Jesus and says, Lord, are there few who are being saved? What, where's, where's all the crowds? Why are there only a few people here? Jesus looks at that guy and says, you just make sure you're in. You make sure that you're in. So eternal life is a higher priority than spiritual accomplishments. It's a higher priority than physical life. In chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, he says, Don't fear those who can kill the body and have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You need to be right with him. You need, you need, it's a higher priority than even your physical life. It's a higher priority than man's approval. In, in Luke 12, 8 through 9, he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angel of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. It's a higher priority than earthly riches. In chapter 12, verse 13, he says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Eternal life is a higher priority than your retirement. 
It's a higher priority than your physical needs in chapter 12. This is all in chapter 12. This is one chapter. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, which you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. But if God so, in verse 28, God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, or, nor be worried. That word for worried is anxious. It's the same word used in our passage for her being anxious. Don't be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. And Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. His kingdom. Eternal life. Be sure that you are in the kingdom of God. It's a higher priority than family relationships. Luke 14, 25 says, says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a higher priority than family relationships. It's a higher priority than you having meaning and fulfilling your dreams. It's a higher priority than self-actualization and self-esteem. Eternal life is a higher priority than everything you have. Look at, well, I'll just read it to you. Look 14, 33. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's the highest priority by far of anything. And obviously, we don't have time to explain all of those passages. I just want you to feel the force of the content of his teaching. So when Mary is listening to his teaching, this is what she's listening to. This is what she's hearing. This is why she, her, her feet are nailed to the floor and she cannot pull herself away from the teaching to go make dinner. And this is what Martha is ignoring. This is what she is missing. So not only is it a high priority, but it is urgent. Luke 12, 40, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not uh, expect. In other places where someone, uh, you know, uh, several people died from a tower collapsing, Jesus says, repent or you will likewise perish. And so when he's preaching these things, you must enter the kingdom of God, then the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the question that you see posed to Jesus over and over. You think people just walk up to each other and ask that question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Is that just a normal conversation starter for you? I don't think it was for them either. You see, Jesus was preaching, you, must, you need to enter the kingdom of God. You need to repent or perish. And so they're coming up to him saying, Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, look at what he says over and again. This is regarding the word of God. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them 
I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is not talking about financial stewardship. This is talking about being in the kingdom of God and living in obedience to Christ. You can have all the financial wisdom in the world and it will profit you nothing. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. What will that profit you? In Luke chapter 8, he says this, 11 through 18. Jesus tells a parable about the seed that was scattered among different soils. And then starting in verse 11, he gives this interpretation. Verse 11 the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. You know that, that parable, right? He ca- there's, a, there's the sower who casts seed, and it lands on different types of soil. There's the path, there's the, thor- there's the rocky ground, there's the thorny ground, and then there's the good soil. And he says here that the seed is the Word of God. Why am I t- well, again, why am I telling you the Word of God? Because it was the Word, Jesus' Word, that Mary was listening to and that Martha was ignoring. So this seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, and they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. They're not believers. They prove to not be believers. Verse 14, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, the anxieties. It's the same word. By the, by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience or with endurance, holding their fruit lasts. It's not choked out like the one in the thorns. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made, that will not come to light. Verse 18, take care then how you hear. From the one who has not, even what he thinks he has. Oh, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. You see, this is not a sentimental. Mary wasn't feeling sentimental about Jesus. She was feeling desperate. Desperate to hear the word of God and to do it. She was desperate to know what she needed to do to enter the kingdom. And that's what caused her to ignore the shame, to ignore her normal responsibilities, to be sure that she was in the kingdom of God. Again, this is all in the book of Luke. If you just read it, what the one thing necessary is, is obvious by the time you get to chapter 9. And Mary chose what would never be taken away. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 8. This is the couple of chapters before. 
Luke 8, 20. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and brother, brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who are most closely related to Jesus are the ones who hear and do his word. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would, lose his, whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So again, these are the types of things that Jesus was saying. How? When the, when the words of eternal life are being spoken in your living room, how can you be in the kitchen? When the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, is here, and this is the type of stuff that He's saying, how important is food at that moment? See, this is your opportunity. They didn't have recordings they can't go listen to it online afterwards and catch the live stream on Facebook later. This was her chance. She was distracted by things of lesser importance because she was not driven by a sense of her own desperate need to hear and to do the Word of God. Have you ever been desperate? Have you, have you ever been in a place where you were so desperate to be right with God it drove you to his word to hear it to understand it to, so you could believe it do you know the Lord are you right with him that's what this is talking about that's what this is that's what this is calling you to do if you if you are not right with God then you must do everything and not rest until you know what you must do to enter eternal life found in Jesus in his words the sentiment comes after that <laughs> the love comes after the relief this isn't a this isn't a passage about doing your devotions and sipping your coffee and just in, enjoying a nice time with the lord this is a passage of desperation. And, to, and, to, and also, it's a, it's a passage in which it shows that even those who welcome Jesus and those who, those who desire to be right with Him can be fooled by their own intuition of what it takes to be right with Him, coming up with their own ways to please Him.
This is not a passage that says don't serve one another. We're called to serve each other, to lay our lives down for one another. That's what we're called to. In fact, in John chapter 11, you see Martha has come to the light. She knows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When, when, when Lazarus is raised again, she says, I know that my brother will be raised again on the last day. She knows that Jesus is the Lord. She has gotten saved. And in that passage, you see her still serving, but with a new heart. You see her serving because she got, her, she got first things first. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her there. So, we live in an age of distraction. And many people are distracted by their own self-righteousness on their way to hell. But we have the words of eternal life. If you have come to believe them, then we need to carry those words to a distracted world and pray that the Lord will grant grace and mercy and effectiveness on his word. Okay, I'm done preaching the whole Bible. Let's pray and ask the Lord to work in our hearts that we would desperately draw near to him. Let's pray.